Hey everyone, Sally here. While we, of course, cover history on this show, we also know what's going on now. And probably, like many of you, we were swept up in the Barbenheimer craze this past week with the movies Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out at the same time. Yesterday, we released a new episode about the history of dolls and how we got to Barbie in the first place. And today, we are re-airing our season one episode on the real story of Oppenheimer and the first atomic bomb test in Los Alamos. Think of it as our version of a double feature. Enjoy. History This Week, July 16th, 1945. I'm Sally Helm. It happened within a millionth of a second. In the New Mexico desert, at 5.29 in the morning, in the center of a bomb. A plutonium sphere contracted, then exploded. It was silent at first, but hot and unbelievably bright. One witness wrote, it was like being at the bottom of an ocean of light. We were bathed in it from all directions. The light withdrew into the bomb as if the bomb sucked it up Then it turned purple and blue and went up and up and up. Someone else described seeing a violet column thousands of feet high. Another wrote, for a fleeting instant, the color was unearthly green. Then, finally, came the sound. A crack and a rumble, like lightning and thunder. The assembled scientists could see and feel and hear. It worked. They had just detonated the world's first ever atomic bomb. Today, the Trinity test in New Mexico marks the beginning of the atomic age, a terrifying new phase of human history. I think historians in the future will look back and see that One of the key events that happened, if not the most important event in the 20th century, is the detonation at Trinity Site and the use of atomic weapons. How did scientists create what was then the most powerful weapon of all time? And how did the bomb's existence forever change not just war and diplomacy, but our sense of what human beings are capable of? When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Dr. John Hunter grew up in what you might call a nuclear family. My father worked for the Air Force after World War II and uh, worked in bases that stored nuclear weapons. So we had photographs of atomic bomb blasts on our TV room wall. 
So as a kid, I thought everybody had that in their TV room. But we, he never talked about what he did because it was top secret. So once I became a historian, I thought, what was my dad doing? Hunter ended up diving deep into atomic history. The story begins with one of the smallest things in the world. Going back to the Greeks, there was this idea of an indivisible piece of matter, individual unit of matter. And it was called an atom, which means indivisible. Uh, Scientists since then have thought, well, what happens if we split it? If you have an indivisible thing, someone will try to divide it. But... There was no way to split it until the 20th century. In 1938, two German scientists are working in a lab with uranium. And they split the uranium atom basically by accident. If atoms can be agitated so that all of a sudden they split, then energy is released, electrons are released, neutrons are released, and they then can go and split other atoms. And you get this cascading release of energy. Which can be weaponized. With the military application of nuclear weapons, what you want is a very quick, rapid chain reaction where all of this energy is released at once and then it becomes an explosion. It's 1938. World War II has not officially begun, but the Nazis are in power in Germany. And the news that two German scientists have split the atom... That spread through the nuclear physics world like a forest wildfire. And there was a quick realization that if the Nazis were able to convert that release of energy into a weapon it would be an incredibly powerful weapon. Physicists everywhere are talking about this. And a few of them in the U.S. decide, we have to get the government to pay attention to this. So they draft a letter. The letter's written by several refugee scientists who have escaped the growing Nazi juggernaut, and they're concerned that the Nazis will get the atomic bomb first. The scientists want to make sure that their warning will be taken seriously. And so they convince a very famous refugee scientist to put his name on the letter, Albert Einstein. Einstein signed it, saying to President Roosevelt that this was a promising area of research, especially in regards to military weapons. So FDR, once he got Einstein's letter, thought, well, okay, this is interesting, and we'll throw a little bit of money at it. But the United States wasn't in war yet. So there was no real sense of urgency. Splitting the atom was still primarily of interest to physicists. But then, in December of 1941, the Japanese Navy attacks Pearl Harbor. Hello, NBC. Hello, NBC. After Pearl Harbor, there was, of course, a rapid mobilization. The atomic bomb was one of these 
research projects that was being fast-forwarded to help win the war. The project gets a new name, the Manhattan Project. The initiative is technically headquartered in Manhattan, at least at first. But... If spies went to look for this Manhattan Project and went to Manhattan, all they would find is an office. The real work was done in other places around the country. Coordinating the Manhattan Project is General Leslie R. Groves. Who had just finished for the Army Corps of Engineers the construction of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. He's organized, knows how to get things done. And a big issue at first is coordination. Researchers for the Manhattan Project are at universities all over the country. And if they wanted to communicate with each other, they had to give a letter to a military person who put it in the briefcase and had a handcuff to the briefcase and carried by train to communicate. This was not sustainable. Groves had to find a central location where scientists could all be together. And he needed to find someone to run it. Talked to different physicists around the country, traveled around the country interviewing them, and he finally picked a man by the name of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was a nuclear physicist in California. He'd been born in New York City to German-Jewish parents. And he was known as a brilliant scientist. One of the great stories about Oppy, that's his nickname, is that he wrote a letter to the New York Geological Society, and it impressed the society so much that they invited him to come give a lecture. And so he showed up with his father, and the president uh, turned to his father and said, well, I'm glad you're here for the lecture. And Oppy's father said, no, no, my son's giving the lecture today. Oppenheimer was then 12. Then he gave the lecture. He wasn't just interested in rocks. Over the course of his life, he was an avid reader, dabbled in poetry, but eventually settled on theoretical physics. Hunter wrote a book all about Oppenheimer, so he spent a lot of time trying to get to know him through the archive. And still... There's some things I don't understand about him. There's just some really kind of puzzling parts of him that don't fit together. He was charismatic. People came away having a conversation with him, just saying, wow, this, this man listened to me and got me, and, and we had a wonderful conversation. On the other hand, he also could be socially awkward. He didn't suffer fools very easily and could easily make you feel very, very stupid. He was a difficult man to understand, but he was an effective leader and a great physicist And he ends up being the perfect person to head up the Manhattan Project. One of his first jobs is he needs to find this centralized location, a place for the top-secret Manhattan Project research to happen. It had to be away from the population center because they didn't want a scientist working on the Manhattan Project to bump into a colleague and say, hey, Joe, what have you been doing? It's safer to avoid big cities for a lot of reasons. If an accident happened, there would go half of Chicago. So he's looking for someplace isolated. But also... It has to be someplace that would attract people to come here. Oppenheimer is going to be recruiting tons of people to join him. In some cases, they'll bring their families. So he's like, we should pick someplace beautiful. And he knows just the spot. 
Oppenheimer had spent a lot of time in New Mexico, knew the area. And so by the fall of 1942, they had chosen Los Alamos as a place for this central laboratory. Los Alamos is surrounded by mountains. It's on the site of a volcano that blew up a million years ago. It's also practically uninhabited. At this point in 1942, there's a boys' school there and about 200 residents. And Oppenheimer starts recruiting scientists to come to Los Alamos. Well, when I approach somebody to say, I'd like you to come to this place, I can't tell you where it is, but I can tell you that this is very important for the war effort. I think people knowing Oppie's background in nuclear physics and their own work in nuclear physics, I think they all put that together and knew that if it worked, this was going to be a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They're motivated by scientific curiosity, or by patriotism, or both. And they move to Los Alamos in droves. This once barely populated town becomes an instant city of about 5,000. And Oppenheimer is running the whole project. Some people say he was a genius because of his work in science. I think he was a genius in how he managed the people at Los Alamos. They were scientists, they were engineers, they were chemists. There were military people who knew about uh, munitions, blowing up things. Of course, all of this is top secret. Some Manhattan Project scientists bring their families, but the families can't know what the scientists are working on. In fact, they're working on two different weapons. One of them is made with uranium. That bomb is nicknamed Little Boy. And once the scientists get their hands on enough uranium, they realize pretty quickly that the Little Boy bomb is going to work. But they're also trying to design a bomb with plutonium. That one is nicknamed Fat Man. And it's giving them a lot more trouble. They tried doing this gun assembly like the traditional bomb, but it didn't work out. Kind of flew apart. The scientists can't get it to work. Meanwhile, the government is on track to spend over $2 billion on this project, money that could have gone directly to the warfront. It had gone to, to bullets and, and tires and tanks and airplanes. So Oppenheimer is feeling the pressure. Appy is, is getting uh, pretty high-strung here. You know, he's living on cigarettes, coffee, when he takes a break from smoking a cigarette, he'll smoke his pipe. He's working long hours to get this done. It's stressful. And some of the scientists begin to have moral qualms about what they're doing. One of them actually leaves for that reason. But the work goes on, and eventually, the scientists at Los Alamos have a new idea. An implosion bomb. At its center is a ball of plutonium, about the size of a grapefruit. They surrounded it with high explosives, and they had to detonate those high explosive lenses all within a millisecond of each other, because the shock wave would then come into the bomb, and it would descend on this pit of plutonium, compressed enough that it would cause the splitting of the plutonium atoms and the chain reaction. But just one millisecond or one millimeter of error, and the bomb would fail. 
if the military drops a bomb in enemy territory and it doesn't explode, then the results of all this top-secret research would fall into the hands of an Axis power. So, the scientists at Los Alamos have to perform a test. The world's first atomic bomb explosion. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Oppenheimer calls the test of the atomic bomb Trinity. He says the name comes from the poetry of John Donne. As scientists prepare for the Trinity test, the stakes are very high. It's 1945. Germany has already surrendered, and the U.S.'s attention is on Japan. President Truman knows that an extended land invasion of Japan will bring massive casualties, both on the U.S. side and for the Japanese. So he's considering using the atomic bomb. He knows it would inflict massive casualties on Japanese civilians, but that it would, in all likelihood, bring a swift end to the war. In July of that year... Truman is meeting with Churchill and Stalin in in Potsdam, Germany, right around the time that the test is scheduled. So Truman wants to know that he has an atomic bomb that works. Partly because he's looking beyond this war and into the next. Not just to end the war in Japan, but as kind of the first shot of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. So Oppenheimer and his team are under tremendous pressure from the highest levels of government. And they also know that this test has massive scientific implications. This is the biggest physics experiment to date in the world. They have all of these different machines that are measuring all of these different elements. They're setting this up in an isolated spot in the New Mexico desert. And there are serious risks. A radioactive cloud could drift away after the explosion. The homesteaders and the cattle ranchers who were nearby, they had to get them off um, of, of their land because of this fear of the fallout. Some early calculations had suggested an even more apocalyptic scenario. There was what concern that the atmosphere would catch on fire and it would be the end of the world because we'd blow up the atmosphere. And then somebody redid the calculations and figured out that a decimal place was was wrong or something. And so they they, they dialed that worry back. But still, it's terrifying to test a weapon this powerful for the very first time. On the morning of the test... There was, as often is in southern New Mexico in July, a summer thunderstorm. 
Scientists are afraid that lightning might strike the tower where the bomb is waiting. The meteorologist for the army was brought in and he said, you're gonna have a window, not very big window, but it's a window somewhere between four and 6 a.m. where you're gonna be able to ignite the bomb. When they get the go-ahead, the countdown begins. And then at zero, of course, the bomb detonates. It implodes, chain reaction happens. People around the Trinity site who weren't involved with the Manhattan Project would say, I saw the sun rise twice that day. It's amazing how quickly the explosion just envelops. I've seen photographs of this huge explosion, this huge cloud of dust and and colors, the yellows, the reds, the purples. People experience the, the, the atomic explosion in Arizona, in Texas, in Mexico. People were thrown out of their beds. The official explanation was that an ammunition depot exploded and, and nobody was hurt. The public isn't allowed to know about it yet, but the atomic bomb worked. Oppenheimer, at first, is relieved. Nearly three years of intense work have led to success. But then one of his, the scientists came up to him and said, well, now we're all sons of bitches. Another scientist said um, that he felt that at the end of the world, what he saw that morning is what the last person would see. Later, in 1965, on an NBC special, Oppenheimer famously says that when he saw the bomb, he thought of a line from the Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, spoken by the god Vishnu. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. This was a new, powerful, destructive force that had been up to release on the world, just like um, this god of the Hindu religion is poised to destroy the world at at, at a moment's notice. Some of the scientists had started to try and reverse course. Before the bomb was dropped, there was a petition that went around to the Manhattan Project facilities. It was signed by scientists saying, maybe this isn't a good thing to use. The army had gotten that petition and just filed it away. Less than a month after the Trinity test, the U.S. drops two atomic bombs in Japan. First on Hiroshima. Eight fifteen in the morning found a four hundred pound bomb with a destructive force of twenty thousand tons of TNT mushrooming up over the stunned enemy city. To the frightened inhabitants, the end of the world had come. And then Nagasaki, three days later. The bombs kill well over 200,000 Japanese people, mostly civilians. The aftermath in Hiroshima and Nagasaki is devastating. Two cities obliterated, families destroyed. People can hardly wrap their heads around it. 
And J. Robert Oppenheimer in 1945, he hasn't yet fully reckoned with how he feels about Truman's decision to drop this bomb that he helped create. I think by this time he's kind of, he's stepped back and he's just, you know, it's out of his hands. The military just took it and, and then did what the military felt they needed to do to end the war. Attention, the peoples of the world. World War II is about to come to its official closing. We're on the Pacific Fleet flagship USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay for the signing of the surrender of Japan. As Truman had predicted, when World War II ends, the Cold War takes shape. And atomic weapons take on a whole new role. They build up in stockpiles during the arms race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Oppenheimer watches this with mounting horror. In the early 1950s, the U.S. develops a new nuclear weapon, the hydrogen bomb. Which is a thousand times more powerful than the bombs that exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He started saying, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. He wrote an article for a Ford Affairs magazine that said, we're like two scorpions in a bottle. We're going to kill each other. Oppenheimer's views are increasingly at odds with the government. And he comes under fire. He's had leftist politics his whole life. And he basically gets accused of being a spy during the McCarthy era. By the way, most historians now agree that he wasn't one. It's a complicated story, but he lost his security clearance. After that, he he was a changed man. And he then refused to comment about atomic affairs after that. He said he didn't have the clearance, so he stepped back. But he was the conscience of scientists. Late in his life, Oppenheimer tries to think about what science should be, how it can be harnessed for good. The nuclear age that he helped usher in had brought about unspeakable horror in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It also brought fear to a generation of people growing up during the Cold War. Though Hunter does remind us that it's about more than just weapons. It's about nuclear medicine. Nuclear power plants generate electricity, about 20% in the United States, up to 70% in France. I also think that there's a possibility that nuclear weapons, if used in anger in the future, if used in war against countries, could lead to the end of human history. Perhaps the most profound legacy of the Trinity Test is the way that it has changed human psychology and our perception of ourselves. Before Trinity? It was only gods who could destroy humans and destroy the world. Now that ability rested in the hands of humans. And I think that's a fundamental shift in our consciousness, that it's something that we can do to ourselves. As Oppenheimer said... I have been asked whether, in the years to come, it will be possible to kill 40 million American people in the 20 largest American towns by the use of atomic bombs in a single night. I am afraid that the answer to that question is yes. I think the only hope for our future safety must lie in a collaboration based on confidence and good faith with the other peoples of the world. 
Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. John Hunter, Professor Emeritus of U.S. History at New Mexico State University and author of J. Robert Oppenheimer, The Cold War, and The Atomic West. This episode was originally released on July 13, 2020, produced by Ben Dickstein and Julie Magruder. It was sound designed by Brian Flood and researched by Emma Fredericks. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Corinne Wallace, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producers are Hazel May and Jonah Buchanan. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.